So um, I'm Sonnet Retman, uh, and I'll be your moderator for today. Thank you for coming to this um, opening session of Friday um, to Women and Performative License. Um, I think what I'll do is introduce all of the panelists now up front, and then I'm going to follow the order in the booklet. Um, and then we'll move in and we'll have nice time for um, Q&A. So I want to introduce to you first Lori Brooks, who when she's not being a good Brooklyn hipster and prowling <laughs> for locally made goat cheese or growing out her beard, she is a visiting assistant professor of history and American studies at Fordham. Um, she's working on a book-length history of African-American funny women in the eras before the popularity of stand-up comedy. Um, and this is an ongoing project you've been presenting here right over the last couple of years, which is fabulous. Um, Judith Tick is Professor Emerita of Music History at Northeastern University. She's published award-winning books and articles about American uh, music and women's history. She's writing a biography of Ella Fitzgerald for Norton. Um, she was elected to the Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2004 for innovative biography. And she was honored in 2014 by the establishment of a research endowment established in her honor by the Society for American Music. So we're thrilled to have her here, too. J.D. Considine um, is a critic and musician. He's written for all the usual suspects over the last three decades, some of which still remain in business. He lives in Toronto, where he's a nominally, nominally jazz critic for The Globe and Mail, a regular at the PopCon. Yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, finally, Bonnie McConnell is a PhD candidate in ethnomusicology at the University of Washington. Um, she's been funded by awards from the Fulbright Hayes Program and the American Association of University Women. Her dissertation focuses on women's musical performance and health in the Gambia. She's taught courses on popular music and music of Africa, the Americas, and Oceania at the University of Washington, and she's conducted research on music in the Gambia, Senegal, and Tanzania. So help me in welcoming these fine panelists. And we're going to begin with Lori Brooks, um, It Takes Two to Tango, Pearl Bailey's comic perversion of the vocal duet. So you see my mantra for the new year. That was not, not intended, but, you know, if it helps, you know, that's great. Okay, so in this paper... I explore Pearl Bailey's perversion of the conventions of the vocal duet, exploring how she draws upon the familiar stage persona for black singers as a vehicle for comic interpretation. From the intimate and confessional torch singer of the cabaret with her cultivation of poetic intimacy and confessional orientation to the earthy frankness of the classic blues woman and the often innocuous girl swinger of the big band era, Bailey crafted an idiosyncratic idiosyncratically funny stage persona with the raw materials of the most widely recognizable conventions of the black female singer. In doing so, she avoided most of the prevailing stereotypes that had haunted black female comedians, namely the masculinized exemplar of a failed fem black femininity, fem femininity, the earthy, sassy mouth mammy, and the desexualized negation of mature womanhood, the mischievous, uh, the mischievous child, for example, Topsy from... Uncle Tom, uh, from uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's <clears throat> Uncle Tom's Cabin. Bailey, an African-American singer and theater actress whose career spanned much of the second half of the 20th century, 
developed a style of humor that was irreverent and exuberant, but also and especially endearingly warm and familiar, an achievement that merits more sober intellectual attention than it has, than it has been given so far. Bailey described herself as a vaudevillian and a humorist, excuse me, rather than a comedian, seeing her trademark storytelling and comic banter as a distinguishing feature of her work. In doing so, she implicitly rejected the idea of the black comic as the shallow idler and the inane fool. The author of five books, her self-description tellingly identifies her with two traditions, one more closely associated with writing and the other with live performance. Thought of largely as a singer and stage actress, Bailey is often omitted from the history of black comic work and often only anecdotally, anecdotally positioned in relation to the civil rights movement's politics of respectability and integrationism, either oversimplified as a pioneer in entertainment or later criticized as too politically conservative and even apolitical in her views on race. This exploration of Bailey forms part of a, a history of black funny women, black female funny women that I am compiling, a study that consciously moves away from the limitations of the sassy, earthy diva paradigm in which African-American female comedians have typically been analyzed. Most of the women who are part of my study use humor in professional performance contexts, on stage, in film, and on record, and in the in-between spaces of the cabaret and the nightclub, spaces where the line between the engagement of performer with audience often break down as neither solely demonstrations of clever self-presentation before a docile audience nor the cultivation of imagined friendship through intimate settings and personalized dialogue. The study of women's humor has, unlike the study of, of men's and African-American com comedy, has failed to capture our interests as scholars of popular culture. We are still firmly cited within the period of recovery and defining what makes women's humor different from men's. Gail Finney has identified women's humor as dialogic, as less hostile than men's, informal, and emerging from the mode of interpersonal exchange. Men's humor, by contrast, is often more hostile, individualized, and demonstrative. This is a limited view of women's uses of humor. Like Finney, the most noted scholars in the field have often failed to capture what makes black women's comedy distinct from women's comedy in general, and most emphasize the role of women in stand-up comedy. Regina Barreca importantly identifies feminist humor as the refusal by women to be the butt of the joke, to be able to return the joke with facility. And Joanne Gilbert has identified female comedians as drawing on karmic, comic persona that enabled them to speak about their marginalization in a way that enables them to be heard by a broader audience. Bambi Hagen's groundbreaking study of African-American comedians, Laughing Mad, and also uh, uh, Robert Townsend's documentary, Why We Laugh, Black Comedians on Comedy, and Why We Laugh, Funny Women, which is also written by Bambi Haggins and directed by uh, Bernard Gourley have sought to emphasize the progress of African-American comedians in their movement away from entrenched racial stereotypes and toward a more naturalistic and realist pre presentation of African-American life and experience, and a less coded exposition of racism and sexism, especially Haggins in the latter. Much of the thoughtful commentary about women's comedi women comedians in the last decade has been in reaction to Christopher Hitchens' 2007 screed about why women are not funny because, as he argues in a nutshell, they aren't bound by the same, ge same gendered expectations of impressing their potential sexual conquests. I call it the peacock theory of gender inequality in comedy <laughs> in contemporary culture. Most point to the success of comedians who pr prove the falsity of Hitchens' thesis, but most often provide an opportunity to raise the question, the issue of inequity in comic show business for women comedians. For most female comedians, Joan Rivers and Lucille Ball emerge as the paradigms through which we trace that history. 
For African Americans, the preferred, preferred paradigm is the progress marked in the movement from Lincoln Perry's shuffling darky step and fetch it to the realism of Richard Pryor's streetwise, in-your-face comic expositions about being a black man in America, or Mom's Mabley's irreverent and re irreverence and rejection of conventional notions of femininity. For African-American women, the work of Jackie Moms Mabley has claimed a heightened position in historicizing the black foremothers of African-American comedy, particularly with Whoopi Goldberg's recuperation of Moms Mabley as a comedic groundbreaker in stand-up. Finally, a piece of work featuring the late Joan Rivers and Whoopi Goldberg presents Moms Mabley both emphasize the labor of the stand-up comedian, the labor of treading the boards when, whether one is at the peak of one's career or in the ditches. As well, they focus on the labor of self-making, self central to the de development of a comic persona, and comedy as hard work. Rivers' work ethic illuminates the dearth of available work for comedians trying to survive in the male-dominated field, field of comedy, but Rivers herself constitutes a piece of work, not only an enterprising-driven businesswoman, but adept in her crafting of an idiosyncratic comedic, comedic persona, well aware of self-making as central to the craft of comedy and self-promotion in a field that has shown itself to be very hostile to women. Bailey's self-description as a vaudevillian implies the historical need for a kind of scrappiness among women and African-Americans on the popular stage, an attention to performance as work that Rivers' documentary acknowledges. It suggests as well a lost history of black female performance, one that we still know little about. But we remain unsure about what to do with the history of the many black female comics who predate the emergence of stand-up comedy in the 1950s and 60s. So while we are at an important transitional stage and critically reflecting on the role of women in comedic performance, there's still much to be done, especially when it comes to exploring the distinctive qualities of African-American comedians. Foremost, what is needed is a critique of stand-up as a masculinist performance genre. By this, I do not intend to suggest that it is bad because it is masculinist or that female comedians are incapable of doing it as well as men. Clearly, Rivers, Mabley, Warfield, Goldberg, Gold, Rudner, Butler, Griffin, DeGeneres, Cho, Monique, and many others have disproved this. Rather, by mas masculinist, I am suggesting that in order to understand what makes black women's comedy distinctive and women's comedy in general, we need to look beyond the comedy club, one mic and a bear stage paradigm in our investigation of how women are funny. And by referring to how women are funny, I am arguing that the performance spaces outside of stand-up and those that predate the centrality of stand-up are vital and rich sources for all of the questions we ask to determine what makes an individual funny. Film, yes, but also the nightclub, vaudeville, and the all-black chitlin circuit, the race records, the one-woman show, the television variety show, and Broadway, etc. As well, the critical frameworks uh, in which we analyze why we laugh at these women is sorely outdated, lagging far behind the critical sophistication with which we explore women in other arena of popular performance, the pop song, the television sitcom, the music video and the construction of pop culture persona and celebrity itself. In almost every arena, we can parse constructions of identity like a champ, but not humor. In stand-up, as the self-presentation of comic cleverness, the awkward and self-negating balance of egoism and, and self-abasement, mm -hmm. the negotiation of the fragile line between emotional release and emotional pain, the trading off of power between performer and audience, and especially the protective confessional mode are wrapped up in masculine angst. Except for the real reality that stand-up reveals that the personal is indeed political, <clears throat> there's not much about it that is, that is not a masculine presentation of masculine prerogatives. I want to look at two examples of Pearl Bailey performing a duet. 
first a 1960 duet with Dinah Shore and then Carol Burnett, both within the television variety format. In the first example, Dinah Shore, one of the rare female hosts of a television variety show, uh, first as part of the 15-minute Dinah Shore show from 1951 to 1960, 1956, and later a full-hour Dinah Shore Chevy show from 1956 to 1963, shares the stage with Bailey in a duet of Mac the Knife. Um, and I want to mention that I'm not uh, talking about the uh, duet No John No uh, with Pearl Bailey and Harry Edison. I know it's really annoying when you come to a presentation expecting one thing and you get another, but I didn't feel like it was uh, germane to what I, uh, the main idea that I wanted to get across. One of a number of musical guests on the show, Bailey was part of a regular feature of the show in which Shore performed duets with a parade of stars of the film and recording industry. Here the two engage in a comic exchange in which Bailey purports to musically explain the meaning of the Kurt Vile classic most famously associated with the white singer Bobby Darin. I still don't know whether we ought to sing Mac the Knife, though. Well, why not, honey? It's a great song. Well, I agree. I love the song, but my goodness, it's been done so much. Just because people, the you know, they play it over and over again, and they, they don't know, they're trying to figure out what it means. There's a, a function that switch the screen. Does anyone know how to do mirroring on a PC? No. I know that there's some kind of function key. Is it on YouTube? Yeah. Why don't we go? Is that what you're trying to get on? I think that's it. You got it. Okay. Except that I know I can't see that. I'll figure it out later. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Shows them, huh, Donna? Pearly White. That's my name, Pearly May. 
fix it later. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> okay. Green America's most valuable test. Excuse me. It's fun watching the dinosaur show. What's <laughs> um, available on YouTube. Uh, as seen, no one really understands the meaning of the song that swings irresistibly, ramping up in exuberance from key change to key change. Check out Ella Fitzgerald swinging hard in the, her version of the song with the Ellington Band. The song is an unlikely candidate for such exuberance, particularly as it tells the tale of a man who has killed someone for money and dumped the body in a river, a tale of under, an underworld in which everyone feels the threat of Mac the Knife being on the loose. Certainly there are many possible ways to approach an analysis of this performance and certainly within the, histor within the historical incarnations of the song from its origins as Demoritet von Mackie Messer in Brechtenweil's 1928 Three Penny Opera to its status as a jazz and pop staple of the 1950s and 60s to the more recent translation into Yiddish by Jewish studies scholar Michael Wex. I don't attempt that here. Neither will I address how Bailey's duet 
fits into the history of comic song duets. I'm interested, in, however, in hearing from you how this duet compares to others within that tradition. What I find fascinating about the song is the way in which Bailey and Shore use it as comic fodder for Bailey's comic digressions, ad-libs, and intentional misunderstandings. Her comic perversion of the song, of the song with Dinah Shore functioning as the straight man, irony intended, in the comedy offers not only a rare example, example of a female comedy duo in action, however fleeting, <clears throat> but also offers us, us an opportunity to expand our understanding of how Bailey invents the moment as comic. In the introduction, Bailey falsely claims to have an edge in interpreting the song because, because she belongs to the teenage set which Shore, to which Shore enjoins her to talk plain. Bailey then bounces from one interpretation, in quotes, to another, using comic ad-libs and non-sequiturs that eventually flummox the composed shore. One might be tempted here to go down a few roads in, the, in an analysis of the performance, to contrast Shore's prim white 60s femininity with Bailey's off-the-cuff seat-of-the-pants black, quote, earthiness, to measure Bailey's effectiveness as a comic ploy that signifies upon Shore's white-bred straightness, to dismiss Bailey as the comical mammy to Shore's conventional white ultra-femininity, and so on. I'm not interested in these analyses, though recognizing the importance of this contrast and the effectiveness of their duet. Because of the type of critique I'm, I'm posing to what I perceive as the limitations of critical approaches to investigations of black and female humor, namely that the effectiveness of black women as comics can, can be evaluated only within their adherence to or distance from entrenched historical stereotypes of black women, that they are either bucking the stereotype or reproducing it. Mm. My argument with seeing black female comedy through the lens of the, quote, sassy diva or the, quote, earthy mammy is that we ignore technique. We ignore whether the audience is in sympathy with the comic and what the comic does with that sympathy. And that is often the true key to comic effect effectiveness for female comics, the cultivation of a sense of intimacy with their audience. This is not a sappy, I feel you sentimentality, but the cultivation of an effective relationship that can also turn on its audience with comic hostility. Joan Rivers excelled at this, as does Kathy Griffin. It is not, however, every female comic strategy. Lucille Ball and Ellen DeGeneres' humor notably lack hostility, but still <coughs> relies upon cultivating intimacy with the audience. When we ignore technique, <coughs> skill, and strategy, we reproduce the structures of racism and sexism that maintain second-class second class status for black female performers. And yet this is not to suggest that the ghosts of the mammy and the hateful wench of minstrelsy are no longer present or that the audience transcends these historically damaging lenses. That being said, I'm interested to develop a theory of black women's humor that traces historically something both more gene genealogical as well as more idiosyncratic. What was it about Bailey's style of funniness that distinguished her? In this clip, we get some indication of this, her irony, improvisational facility, warmth and the sense of comic adventurism and exuberance that dissolves into the kind of nonsense that Constance Rourke attributed to black humor. Constance Rourke's uh, use of that term is problematic in a way that I can address in Q&A, but I believe it still has utility. This is also not only the province of black funny women, but an aspect of black humor in general and other threads of comedy as well. As she notes in her memoir, Bailey's memoir, she took notes from the jazz pianist and raconteur Fats Waller, known for his nonsensical but barbed comic ad-libs captured on records. But Bailey does it well and does it in her own way. She reflects a long tradition of black female singers who inject their song performances with humor, reflect, reflecting what Daryl Cumber Dance calls a love of musical rhythmic language in her anthology of black women's humor, Honey Hush. <coughs> Bailey breaks through the wall of the duet proper in those moments when her ad-lib breaks Dinah's focus on the lyrics. The first is when she sings Down by the River, Don't You Know? 
And the second one, she notes that the key changes are getting too high for her to sing, but also too high for Shore. And finally, at the end, when Bailey and Dinah began to ex begin to exuberantly jump up and down, bounce and shake hands. Interestingly, Bailey uses the same rejoinder as Bobby Darin, a white singer, in his 1958 version of the song and the most popular of its time. But here, and with a clap of her hand for punctuation, she takes on the persona of the African-American church, church lady who teeters on the brink of catching the spirit. Shore picks up on this gospel-inflected response to her call, and it is the call-and-response nature of the song that makes Bailey's quotation of the Negro spiritual both ironic and strangely appropriate. Darren's singing of the frame has little of the same effect. When Bailey interjects, it's getting too high for me to sing, it's too high for you, it's too high for you too, Dinah breaks focus on the song once again, knowing that Bailey is speaking the truth. It gets harder to ramp up the quality of the singing when it is out of range and when one is laughing. Finally, begin, Bailey begins to jump up and down and then starts to pump Shore's hand in a moment of comic exuberance, one which Shore cannot help but respond to. This is a moment of female sympathy across race, of women bonding in the comic moment of exuberance and freedom. It is an instance of momentary utopia that is unique in the history of popular performance that emphasizes freedom from conventions of gender. In another example of Bailey's comedy, she performs in a skit entitled Female Psychiatrist Charged with Helping a Client Played, client played by Carol Burnett who is having relationship trouble with her husband. The title suggests that simply by, by virtue of her gender, this is an unusual situation ripe for comedy. Bailey's character repeatedly cuts off her, her client's attempts to explain her problematic situation with the effect of contradicting the psychiatrist's injunctive to facil facilitate a talking cure. It is a psychiatrist who does all the talking and none of the listening. Uh, and I'm just going to play the last couple of minutes. His name you was always get the other time. I knew it. You did? I knew it. Well, why didn't you say all that in the first place? But you have got a problem, honey. A good man. I guess the trouble all started with the first man. man. His name was
tell you what, why don't we make it the same appointment this time next week and you and I can do my mama done told me. Oh, you're sweet. <laughs> What's most fascinating about this sketch is that both Burnett and Bailey break into song, a bluesy song that both comedians spelled out about the woes of womanhood in a male-female relationship. At the end of the song, the tension brought about by the psychiatrist's clear and clearly unprofessional self-absorption is broken by the song that the women share. Now the two have reversed positions with the patient sitting in the psychiatrist's chair and the good doctor on the couch. Now in the superior position, Burnett's character suggests that they meet again next week and do a duet of My Mama Done Told Me. But the sketch, which structurally undermines the idea of women in position, positions of authority as, psychi as psychiatric authorities, becomes instead a moment of interracial female bonding. Like the short performance, when the structure of the performance breaks down, women can connect across whatever perceived differences they may have believed separated them. This is, in a sense, a Pollyannish interpretation of comedy as breaking down societally constructed walls of difference, perhaps the worst kind of analysis of power relations and cultural production. But it is distinctly, but is it distinctly Pearly May? Yes. Pearly May, Pearly, <laughs> Pearl Bailey prided herself on being a woman who was down to earth, plain talking and simple, simple in the best sense of real, someone who sought to break through the artifice of performance, who cannot be encapsulated within any stereotype of black female identity, who saw herself as a worker and an entertainer in the field of popular culture, and who demonstrated love in her work. She was officially the ambassador of love, but as articulated in her work, she demonstrated the possibility of an interracial sisterhood that would become a point of contention for second-wave feminists in the 1970s, in a way that she shared the stage with female stage performers who were also challenging the stereotype of women as heads of their own variety shows. Context is everything, and here Bailey exceeds the conventions of earthy blues singer and the intimacy-craving cabaret or nightclub singer. She demonstrates that grown women can still play, and play with a carefree and slightly irreverent exuberance that augurs in the next generation of black funny women. This may not be an example of the kind of black female radicalism of a mom's, mom's Mabley, uh, but she exemplifies a pushing of the boundaries of black female performance, which, which suggests, as she indicated in one of her songs, Oh, girl, I tell you, a woman's work is never done. Well, that's the way it is. Thank you. Okay, so while, uh, Judith, while you're setting up, yes. we have time for a question for Lori. <clears throat> we'll move into so what do you think I should do that? Judith's talk. So I have a question for Lori. Ask away, Jane. So in the uh, uh, duet with Dinah Shore, uh, you mentioned the call and response. And, and I mean, and I think actually it's a bit more like in, in jazz, we have the obligato instrumental mm -hmm. cutting it you know, behind the singer. Uh, Pearl Bailey is the obligato. The question I have, though, is to what extent do you think she was improvising? And how, given that it's television, and television, they didn't like a lot of improvisation. <laughs> Uh, do you have any any sense of how much of that was scripted and how much of it was off the cuff? Um, I don't. I don't have a sense of that. Um, but I'm not sure. That is an interesting question, and I would be interested to know the answer to that. 
uh, but it feels improvisational, mm -hmm. which is, for me, the most important. Yeah, yeah, right. It's important thing. I have a similar question. Um, her duet of Mom's Mabley on Saturday Night Fish Fry, are you familiar with that one? No, I don't know that one. Well, it also sounds uh, terribly improvisational, mm -hmm. and I'm just, <coughs> just wondering if it, if it was. Uh, mm. if so it's how much to get to? Yeah, these are the just a recording. These are great questions, and I, I hope to find the answer to them. But honestly, I don't know the answer right now. Um, but but the feeling of the feeling of the ad lib and the feeling of the improvisational qualities of the performance, I think, are something um, you know rather unique. Um, as well as the fact that these are two women performing in a, in a duet. Uh, so whether whether they're actually reflecting improvisation or I mean, the, you know. There's also the question of whether jazz mus musicians are really improvising, or you know, they're, yeah. they're really sort of, you know, reproducing a lot of riffs and licks that they have performed in other contexts. So, yeah. kind of the difference between the good and the great. Yeah. Gail. Oh, I just Yeah. And, and yeah. those are moments, of course, as a viewer, you really enjoy, like, somehow the, the, the you know, the performance of somehow the comedy to, like, overwhelming yeah. the performer. But I just thought, you know, because Bailey um, doesn't lose it. She doesn't, yeah. like, have that slippage. So yeah. whether or not that was, and those seem genuinely, of kind of, like, authentic, that yeah. they're not improvised, yeah. um, or they're not planned. But anyway, that was another really interesting, to me, I, yeah, I would. The same thing happens in the in the Mabley duet. Uh, she appears to just break up laughing at something Mabley did kind of did to her, mm -hmm. and uh, it sounds just utterly spontaneous. Mm -hmm. like it's, it's yeah. You just wonder. I you know I th I mean I would I'd love to talk about this more in the. Q yeah, let's wait. Let's wait because we got it. We have three more. 